1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to New Books Network. I am your host, Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns. Very excited today to invite Dr. Tara Green to discuss her new book, Reimagining the Middle Passage, Black Resistance in Literature, Television, and Song. In the book, Tara, Dr. Green, uh, turns to 20th and recent 21st century representations of the Middle Passage created by African-descended artists and writers. Examining how these writers and performers revised and reimagined the middle passage in their work, Dr. Green argues that they recognized it as a historical and geographical site of trauma, as well as a symbol for a place of understanding and change. Their work represents the legacy African captives left for resisting social death, the idea that Black life does not matter, but it also highlights strong resistance to that social death, the idea that it does matter. Dr. Green is a professor of African-American and African Diaspora Studies at UNC Greensboro, where she is also the Linda Arnold Carlisle Excellence Professor of Women's and Gender Studies. This was definitely a book that I had to read twice, and I liked it even better the second time. I'm excited to have Dr. Green here. And Tara, would you like to tell us more about how the book came to be and uh, what your... um, what your big takeaways are for the reader.
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me for this interview to discuss the book. The book was basically something that had been on my mind for uh, maybe 10 years before I actually wrote it. Um, It came out of my sense that water was sort of a connective tissue across the diaspora um, for a variety of reasons, whether it, it had to do with um, spiritual beliefs, shared spiritual beliefs, um, certainly travel, forced travel through the Middle Passage. But as I tried to explain in the preface, Water is part of my DNA in terms of how I lived a life growing up in the New Orleans area because so many of my relatives, the men in my family, had positions where they worked on what they call the riverfront. Doing various kinds of um, work, whether it was my father building ship parts. Or whether it was working on the docks as as certain supplies came in, and also one of the favorite things that I loved to do when I was growing up was to move from the west bank to the east bank part of New Orleans by boat. So I would do that on a little ferry, especially on in Mardi Gras, um, the season of Mardi Gras, but also because it was really the easiest thing to do. You could just walk as opposed to driving around trying to find a place to park. Um, But also when I was in high school, I had a boyfriend, um, and that was something that we loved to do. So we had various sorts of relationships with water um, that was not always thought of as the trauma that I do talk about in the text.
0: Oh that's fascinating. Yeah, the preface was really illuminating and it it sort of set set a nice tone to see your personal threads through the book without you actually kind of turning this into a, a semi-autobiographical work. Was it does it change have you always done work that's based on things you feel personally connected to or was there something unique about this project?
2: Um, yeah, actually, um, you know, even getting a PhD in English where the focus there is really on storytelling and being fascinated by the ways in which Black people in particular tell stories, I grew up hearing the stories um, really from my mother and an uncle of mine who talked liberally about their childhood and the challenges of that childhood, but how beautiful that childhood was, even though they were growing up in a rural area of Louisiana. So storytelling is something that just comes so natural to me. Mm. So um, I've moved back and forth between orality and the written word. Of course, um, songs, I sing in a choir at church and grew up in a Black church. So um, telling stories through testimony, telling stories through song was a part of something that was a cultural practice for me, as well as a spiritual practice. And then um, analyzing stories. And one of my other genres that I writing write in is essays also. So I do try to move between genres in my analytical work.
0: yeah. and and there's a real sort of musical undertone to this book because even though you're primarily looking at literature, they're not exclusively. I mean, as the subtitle states, you also move through television. Uh, But you also have sort of songs woven through each chapter. So it makes for a really, I think, robust reading experience because you get that sense of, I think, like you say, the written and the orality and the lyrical and the musical. So I really enjoyed the way that you layered these together in each chapter. And one thing you're talking about uh, sort of gets to the heart of the book, which is, first of all, if you could just explain, I just don't want to make any assumptions, but if you could explain kind of briefly what the middle passage is. And then also you make the argument that the Middle Passage is a site of trauma, right, obviously, but that you also want to capture that in the in the various texts that you analyze while also looking at it as a site of rebirth or conversion is a word that you use uh, in and against the social death that the Middle Passage sort of continues to articulate even to the present. So this is a really interesting argument. It's very nuanced. It's very doubled. So could you kind of unpack some of these key terms before we get into the case studies? So middle passage, uh, social death, water as rebirth, conversion, um, and anything else that you think is, it's kind of crucial to understand the book if you haven't read it yet.
2: Right. And I see all of those as interconnected. So starting with the question about what is the middle passage. And that's really at the root of the text, that um, I'm looking at these Black artists who try to grapple with what is the Middle Passage. So we know that geographically, it has to do with the Atlantic Ocean and that forced movement of people of African descent from the western part of the continent to the Americas. So um, what we now call the United States of America is really my primary point of interest, but not just the United States and the East Coast where I currently live in North Carolina, but really I'm looking more so at the South because where I am from in the New Orleans area, we can still hear the resonances of an African presence. Um, and that there are certain kinds of markers, not necessarily on the river, but certainly um, we have this place called Congo Square, for example. But we can also hear the resonances and accents in various parts of the city and outside of the city as well. So the middle passage is that physical space, but it, uh, it is also a space that we see artists going into. And trying to figure out um, what happened within the middle passage. So in that that middle space of the travel is that conversion that occurs and that had to occur because what does it mean to survive um, a ritual of trauma? What is lost in that spiritually, and what is gained in that spiritually? Mm. We also know that it is a place of death because there were bodies of, um, people of Africa who were taken for any number of reasons, um, depending on the case and thrown overboard or that some may have jumped overboard as well. So we also know that it is a sacred place of death, um, and, and, um, when I was growing up in church, when people would, would do the baptism, they would say that it is a watery grave. We can say the same about the middle passage. Um, but we also have to realize that at the point of death, there's also the point of survival. So the question is, what survives? And that is where we began to touch on the conversion experience, because it is a transformation of the spirit, of the soul of the person who is dealing with that trauma. And so I looked to Albert, Albert work to kind of help me with the definition and understanding of that. Um, And then you asked about the social death. And so that's the remnant of that. Um, The social death experience as Orlando Patterson talks about it and, and, um, Abdul Jam Muhammad that I also use as well. Talk about um, what is lost and what that means to the person who has experienced the loss. And what I am arguing, actually, is that even though someone says that the person in this in this case, an African person, now an African descendant, may be socially dead in the sense that there is no connection to the origin. What I say is just because someone says that doesn't make it so. So even though we may not be able to name specifics, yes, that is loss. But I am focusing on actually the life and the value of that life and the resistance to the ideas of death. And so I believe that that is what these artists are trying to tap into through their work. So I hope that makes sense to the audience.
0: Yeah, it's I, very accessible. I appreciate that. And I never can assume, I mean, I, I hope that people would be familiar with the Middle Passage, maybe have read previous works that you draw upon or uh, the 1619 Project from the New York Times, but you never can tell. So so speaking of this, before we get into the case study, I did want to ask one more question because you make a comment in the introduction that I found very interesting that kind of brings all this together. And you essentially say, uh, I'll just quote you because it's easier, that as they traveled across the Atlantic, and here you're talking about the Africans who were being, who were stolen and trafficked through the Middle Passage. But as they traveled across the Atlantic, we can imagine that some may have seen the Atlantic as a connection to the sacred. So there's this real doubledness of the ship in the water as obviously this horrible site of, of historical trauma that reverberates through the present. But also you raise this issue of it as, as being sacred at the same time because of the water, because of the geographical connection. So you can, ta- can you say a little bit more about that piece of the introduction? Um, because I think that will, will lead us well into the first conversation about a- Alex Haley's roots.
2: Yes, absolutely. Our sense of water on this side of the Atlantic um, does not always take into account the sense of water, the meaning of water to African peoples who were not Christian. Mm. So, for example, going into the water... May be read as suicide, as a lot of Equiano nods to it in his narrative, the interesting life of a lot of Equiano. But he's also writing to an audience that expects for him to be Christian. Is there something else that he may even understand about that that he is not necessarily saying? Well, we know that. Going into water, even in the Christian sense, means um, a rebirth as a as a um, ritual of baptism, which is rebirth. But what if that water is also entry into a world of loved ones who have passed on, for example? Um, what if, and, and, and we know that there were such beliefs, what if... That water also means that it is bringing one close to a deity. So we know that there are people of Ghana that believe that um, the Atlantic was a deity and even did not do fishing on a specific day of the um, of the week in honor of that deity. So to, to remove the veil of the Christianity, and to go back to the beliefs of people who were taken, that water means something other than just a place where, well, I just died to escape this. What does escape mean? Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm saying in that context. Well, and it it gets really, I think it's a nice transition
0: into the first, I guess you call it like the content chapter of the book. I'm not sure what language you would use, but you do a really... Unique reading of Alex Haley's roots, and so you talk about sort of the overlooked role of um, maybe not the middle passage itself, but well, yeah, in some ways the middle passage, but also the way that that metaphor slips and slides throughout the novel, and then you contrast it to the uh, the original to the 2016 version, in which you argue, quote, Americans may not have an opportunity to forget about slavery, but they could forget about the middle passage, which I think is really important for readers who are maybe entering this without having any historical or cultural um, associations with the middle passage. And then you ask, what did this new generation know about the middle passage? It's connection to new depictions of slavery and racial tensions at the heart of mass protests. So it's a breathtaking chapter in scope and an in insight, and you're doing things with this, uh, with Alex Haley's roots that to, I think your knowledge and mine haven't really been done before. So can you maybe unpack <laughs> that chapter um for the for the listener a little bit, and give yourself a little credit because i re- I mean this chapter was an exceptional work of writing. I just beautiful,
2: well, thank you. I thought it was important that if I were going to talk about the middle passage and to talk about um African descendant writers, then it wouldn't make any sense at all to not go back and look at Alex Haley. Mm. So even though so many people have not actually read that novel, but they can talk about the series and what the series meant to them and what it even meant to America at that time, because it's positioned as a series, as, as I talk about, it, it was connected to the um, Bicentennial um, so the U.S is celebrating itself and it's coming out of certain kinds of, of political scandals. And so he is a part of that discussion. So it's really the rare time I you know, I don't think that this has been done since. It's a rare time in which the uh, forced migration of people of African descent is, um, situated as part of the American story, even um, the American story, but but even a part of the celebration of of where the country is, and I so and I guess thinking about where the country should go, that it can't go anywhere unless it at least acknowledges to some extent that slavery did occur, that there were enslaved people here in America, so. Its achievement can't be overlooked, but he did write a novel, and he goes on for a good number of chapters in that novel um, that give this description of an Africa that is idyllic, that is Edenic in many ways, where he establishes a family, he establishes rituals, Um, through his um, characterization of Kunta, who's part of a family and who has a vision for the kind of life that he would like to have. And then he is taken away from that family. So family, for me, actually, another thread of this text is the attack on Black families, Mm. That begins with slavery and that we see going through Katrina, which is uh, one of the reasons why it took me 10 years to write this book, because I was disrupted by what happened to the New Orleans area um, during Katrina. So I couldn't write about it until um, several years later, once once really once we got to the 10 year anniversary of um, of the coming of Katrina. So in terms of, of the importance of that particular text and the series, which are two different narratives, he did not write the screenplay for the series. It, it was important for me to make sure that we had an origin story and really for the for. Um, there was, of course, the poem "The Middle Passage" that had been published some years before, but uh, we would not have had a visual way of thinking about the Middle Passage until Alex Haley and his marketing of um, of, of Roots. So then, once we get to a point in this country where it is decided that the um, that viewers need a newer version that is more historically correct because, of course, Roots was um, torn up really by historians and some other folks because of its inaccuracies in its presentation of Africa, which people didn't care about in the 70s, okay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that becomes important too. What is it that we want and why do we want it at the time in which it's presented to us? So then we have this new series that comes out um, where we're hoping that this new generation will watch it and get a sense and remember the ways in which people were asked to get together and to remember in the 70s. But the interesting thing is when I ask my students, have they seen that version? They're surprised that there was a version. And they have, for the most part, uh, the students in my African-American studies courses, They've seen the 70s version. They just haven't seen the version that was written for them um, in the 21st century. And so it still resonates, that 70s version, um, even if people have not read the novel. So for me, focusing specifically on the presentation of the Middle Passage was um, really where I had to begin this book.
0: Yeah, and I th- I think it's I mean it was the perfect beginning because it's iconic, but also it's the kind of iconic not everyone has really paid attention to closely. We all sort of uh know the inherited wisdom, but we don't necessarily know we didn't but you give it new eyes and then you contrast that to the new piece and it's a really well-done chapter. I can imagine this took a long time for you to get this good. I I really enjoyed reading it. Um and you do some awesome stuff just as a quick note with Silence and Kevin Kwashi's work when you read mm-hmm. Kunta Quinte's "How Haley Writes" as an act of resistance, and Kevin's actually going to be on the podcast soon to talk about his new book. Great! So that's another um, incentive to read. Because again, I think one thing I want to point out to the listeners, if, if you've listened to my interviews before, one thing that Tara is amazing at is really close reading. I mean, you you see up close and personal to this text in a way you may not if you were just watching it yourself. So having her eyes to guide you through the text. Is absolutely fascinating and something that's hard to give credence to on an interview like this, since we tend to go big scope. But one of the many reasons to get the book is for these in-depth, close readings of the nuance of face and look and resistance and different rhetorical strategies and literary um, figures that are that you. I mean, you just look at so many of them so well. So I wish we could do more with that, but it's just not really conducive to the interview. But definitely check out the book for those specific. I think scene by scene readings. So um, is there anything else you want to say about the Haley's Roots chapter before we maybe move into some of the the later stuff?
2: No, I I just think that it's important for us to go back really and look at Haley. I think that he's been forgotten because there were some lawsuits and some questions Mm. about who wrote this and plagiarism and so on and so forth, but we can take that up. By looking at the text and thinking about its importance, because it is a work of literature. So um, and there are so many different parts to it. I only look at the middle passage, but um, there's certainly quite a bit that can be said about the treatment of women in that text that I might actually go back and look at Um There's the travel and movement along the East Coast and and, um, from one generation to the next. So there's so much more. So if there are any graduate students out there thinking about what should I do for my (laughs) topic, um, you can pull a lot from that particular novel.
1: Slash NBN 50 to get 50% off.
0: Yeah. Have you read uh, Zakiya Amon Jackson's Becoming Human? Not yet. Okay. You, I think that you, I mean, I don't know really what you like to read, but Zakiya was also on the podcast and that book, your books, they're doing very different work, but the overlap is amazing and they, they read really well one after the other because I learned a lot more, I think. From each one of you, by by being able to read you in conjunction. The other thing I wanted to ask: Have you watched or heard of the long song, which is the sort? I guess you'd call it like a like a dramatized retelling of the Andrea Levy novel about? Um, I think it's the Jamaican rebellion in the nineteenth century. I have not. Oh, you no. should check that out because I've heard a lot of people say that this is sort of an homage to Haley. If Haley had written as a 20, about 21st century, about women in the 21st century. So I don't know Mm -hmm. if there's anything there, but it's on PBS. And I really thought the first edition was awesome. And they're going to do a couple more. So it would be, I'm waiting for a piece of critique to come out about that because I don't have the chops, but I'm Mm -hmm. excited to see someone do a piece on that. So. In case you're looking for another project. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So chapters three and four of the of, of your current book, not the one I'm trying to get you to write, uh, look at the connection of the middle passage, as you said, to sort of like more New Orleans. And you look at Charles Johnson, you look at HBO's series Treme, and you look at uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes. And in particular, as I've told you several times, I really loved the reading in chapter four of Rhodes' uh, Marie Laveau mystery trilogy. Uh, So, once again, just trying to give our readers a sense of the remarkable breadth of this book. But given that many of our readers, as you've mentioned, may be familiar with some of those texts, let's look instead at your reading of, I want to say, Paul A. Marshall. Is it Paul? Is it just Paul or is the E pronounced? It's Paul. It is Paul. Okay. Paul Marshall's Praise Song for the Widow, where you really do an astonishing job of bringing forth this idea of return and a reconfigured self as a form of resistance in the legacy of the Middle Passage that reverberates throughout the novel. Uh, And as you state, you argue that Marshall's characters, Avi and Aunt Cooney, embrace an African identity that has been suppressed as a result of the slave trade. And in an effort to resist this history, they, quote, return home to Africa in memory through storytelling and dancing. So bringing back that storytelling theme you mentioned in the preface. So can you tell us more about this chapter and your reading of Praise Song for the Widow?
2: Well Person for the Widow is just a beautiful novel. Uh, it's diasporic in the sense that we see movement in the United States and connection between South Carolina and New York. And then we also see this connection with the Caribbean. Um and we see the connection with African beliefs as well. So we goodness the dancing the um singing there's um and when when i think about the music there's jazz and and how she pulls out langston hues to be able to make these connections mm-hmm. and it's it's just a beautifully written novel of such nuance um so your question, say your question again, I got caught up. It's really just uh, uh, sort of trying to recreate
0: as best you can this whole chapter for Mm -hmm. for the listener.
2: Okay. So what I'm doing with that chapter is to pull out those nuances and connections. So because I am talking about what I call the Atlantic Global South, looking at certain states that are in the South, of course, Louisiana, South Louisiana, where I was um, raised, and then moving up the East Coast a bit to South Carolina, what I do there is... Instead of looking at the novel through the lens of this woman who is in New York and who gets cut off from the South, which becomes a problem for her and, um, of course, a a problem for her husband as well, who loves the story that is told, she is rooted in the South as a Black woman. And that South is um, the coastal area of South Carolina. And what she learns from her Aunt Cuny is this beautiful story of how um, at Ebo landing, as they say, the, there's a story that Africans got off the ship that they were brought on and that they looked back at all that was to come. They looked at those people They had enslaved them and they turned around and they walked back to Africa singing Hmm. and shouting and dancing. And it's a story that's told in several places. I sort of looked around to see who was telling the story and where it was still being told. And it's even in in Lemonade, um, which gives a nod to the beautiful film Daughters of the Dust. When you say Lemonade, do you mean Beyonce's album? Yes, I just, to, I just want to make sure. Yeah, right. The, so the video, there's a part where they're actually walking on water, and it's back to Africa, and mm-hmm. it's it's a nod to um, "Daughters of the Dust." And prior to that, of course, we already have Paul Marshall's um, um, version of it as well. And so then there are questions that the little girl has for her aunt who tells her this story, her great aunt who tells her this story. She asks her, did that really happen? Something to that effect. And and her aunt looks at her um, and asks her, do you ask that question about Jesus Christ Hmm. walking on water? And so what she tries to get her to understand is to have belief. And to stay connected to that belief, because this story is about you and your people. So she loses that when she goes to the North and her um, husband, um, something happens and they sort of lose their connection to one another. And it's when she returns to the Caribbean as this Middle Aged woman who is also by that time um, a mother of of adult children, she has lost her husband. So she's the widow and she also has lost that connection and she is drawn back into that connection through spiritual um, means. Mm. And so, you know, she goes through a middle passage experience. That um, is, is just beautifully told because those of us who have some understanding of the history of these narratives, whether they were told orally or whether they were written as early as Alada Aguiano, whose work in my book is an elderly text, as I call it, and an ancestral text, actually. We see all of this coming together in this novel, which I I also love to teach as well. So that's what I'm tapping into with Paul Marshall, this woman's journey of how she really needs the South and those beliefs that connect her to an African heritage that give her an identity that is taken away from her. So she is not socially dead. She Mm. is. A person who is alive and converted and wants to pass that down to generations to come as well.
0: Yeah, it's, I will say, I always enjoy typically people's reading of novels more than I do the novel itself. But I recently got the novel after reading You Read the Novel, and it is really good. I'm just not, for some reason, I've just never been a literature fan. I like literary criticism, but this is a rare exception where I'm enjoying the novel. Quite a bit on its own terms. I mean, I'm only you know probably a hundred pages in at this point, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, um, you did such an excellent job of answering that question. I'm really impressed by how how tight that was. Do you want to maybe dive into any specific part of the novel, or since we didn't, we haven't really gotten into the 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 very specificity with which you're able to look at this? Is there some like little tiny representative moment or a particular reading that you really enjoy from this chapter?
2: Um, you know what what I love about that novel is the description of, of the little girl walking behind her aunt through the woods. That is just so beautiful. You know, the connection that Marshall makes with the land. And then that also has to do with the dance, that the feet have to stay connected to the land, otherwise Mm-hmm. the um the removal of the feet becomes something that is um an offense to what they are trying to do to to this um ancestral connection that they have to make with the land so the elements of nature really resonate loudly in this novel so it's 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 the woods walking through the woods and waving at people and And um, going on this ritualistic walk, but then it also connects to the ritualistic walk of turning around and walking back to Africa. Mm -hmm. So um, the way that she makes those connections or that people are able to make those connections by following um, through is just, you know, not many people can follow through (laughs) in that way as writers. And Paul Marshall is able to do that.
0: Do you mind if I read from your book on this? Is that weird to read you to you? No, that's
2: fine. I was actually trying to find that. Oh, great. Yeah.
0: I had marked this because you made yeah. a comment about Eden that I found interesting because there is such a tension between Christian belief and non and, and other belief in the book. And so to then sort of see how Eden links up in this wood scene, is, I thought was really fascinating. So this is on page 150, and I'll just read one one paragraph. Although, again... If you like this, you should get the book. All right. So Aunt Cooney proves instrumental as a spiritual guide for her niece as she appears to Avi in her dreams or in her subconscious memories. Traveling through her memories, Avie recalls her visits with Aunt Cooney. Marshall succeeds in providing an Edenic, Edenic, the scene of Eden, in her description of Avi as a child who participates in the ritual of following her great Aunt Cooney twice a week to Ebo Landing, where she tells her niece the story of their ancestors passed down from Aunt Cooney's grandmother. For four summers, starting when she was seven years old, Avi, named Avatara by her aunt after her aunt's grandmother, follows her through the wood, dark even on the sunniest day because of the Spanish moss hanging in great silver gray skeins from the oaks, which was a place filled with every kind of haunt there is according to the children she played with in Tatum. A place where rituals take place and hauntings of the past occur, Tatum represents for the child a home, while the story could be told from any location. The visit of the haunted space, where the child is part of a historical performance requiring her to walk in the setting's origin, suggests a call for her to submit. Avery must go to the place, feel the sun, see the trees, and other aspects of the nature that symbolize the past. The trees, the sun, the water do not forget the past, as Toni Morrison has stated in Sights of Memory. And A.V. is asked to submit to the significance of these ancestral memories. I mean, you're like this—the right you're writing here I, is great. But the, you're right. The, I mean, the novel really, the, its sense of place is fabulous.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, but you know, it's kind of easy to write when you're writing about something that you love, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of like um, I'm just trying to keep up with a writer who's, I think I've read all of her novels. I just love what she does with characters and with, um, those sites and making them memorable. Mm -hmm. Um, even in, in the apartment that where they're dancing and and reciting, um, it's just such love also, um, in this novel. So yeah, thank you. So not
0: being a literary critic myself, do you and Marshall correspond? Does Marshall read your, like, is there like a, Dialogue there, or do you kind of write about her from afar?
2: No. Um, and Marshall passed away a few years ago. Oh, she
0: passed. Okay. Yeah,
2: around the same time as Morrison. And I never got an opportunity mm. to meet her. She was um, uh, rather advanced in age at the time in which I was writing this. But um, so, no, I, I never met her. I never engaged with her. Personally, about her work. This is just, just the legacy of it.
0: Oh well, that's well. It, she she found an excellent legacy. She's um. I'm, I'm glad that you're that you're bringing that. That I think to me anyway. You brought this novel into my purview through the book, and so it's been nice to be reintroduced to this, or, or introduced for the first time rather to Marshall's work. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. Um. Okay. So we're doing excellent on time. You are a phenomenal interviewer. <laughs> You're just right on the ball, but we should definitely, I think, get to the conclusion of the book, uh, which you sort of bring into the present in the, so to speak, in the 2015. Although you wrote this in 2018, so this was very, you were right, must have been right at the time you were kind of wrapping up the book that the 2015 mass shooting happened in Charleston at the church, and so why is this the place where you chose to end the book? How did this nuance or affect the overall argument and? You know, thinking about wrapping up the interview, what, what questions or lingering considerations do you think this leaves with the audience as we're once again looking at more tragedy now with the Atlanta shootings, uh, with the murder of Duante Wright?
2: Yeah. So what I do in the conclusion is grapple with the ideal of forgiveness as part of a long narrative or a series of acts of redemption for the human soul of Black people. Um, you know, how how do we forgive? How do we forgive this trauma that we've been left with? How do we forgive the ongoing um, acts of violence for us? And, of course, there's an argument where forgiveness is not necessary. But I also find forgiveness to be something That only humans can do. Mm. So um, I really do see it as an act of resistance. Um, And maybe not forgiving is also an act of resistance as well. Sometimes I've said that on a personal level. So when I've had this discussion, I've presented this at a conference or two uh, where the audience has mostly been Black. It, It really resonates with Black people and trying to think about whether or not we are ready. And maybe it tends to be the day of the week. So, you know, right now on April the 16th, we have before us three events that have occurred within the last few months that are just in front of us right now. We have, um, We've gotten to the end, almost the very end of the 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 trial regarding the murder of George Floyd. There will be closing arguments on Monday, and then we will wait to see what happens. There was the um, in quotes accidental shooting of Dante Wright, twenty years old, ten miles from where. George Floyd was murdered by a police officer whose name I won't say. Mm. And then we have video footage of a young man, Black and Latino, who was pulled over in Virginia, I believe it was, and who was pepper sprayed by police officers. So, you know, it depends on the day of the week. It is difficult to... When we are treated as though our lives do not matter, as though our lives can just be taken away from us, Um, this is a legacy of white supremacy, which I do touch on in the text. But then we also see these acts of resistance. We see them through protests, we see them through um, demanding that charges are. Filed against individuals and fired when necessary. So there's this constant refrain of my life matters as a black person. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it that should be done? What is it that we can do? How can we protect ourselves? I keep saying to you, I am not dead. I do not wish to be dead. I am saying to you that, as um, Dante Wright aunt said, that I am lovable, I am loved, I belong to someone that needs to be honored. And these African descendant writers, through their visitation of the transatlantic slave trade, particularly the Middle Passage, are trying to grapple with that by showing the humanity and the effects. Of inhumane um, acts against Black bodies and Black people. And that's what I'm trying to deal with in this text.
0: Yeah. um, Well, thank you for that. That was a, I can imagine that's a very charged couple of sentences you just offered us. So I appreciate you being willing to go there in the conversation since we did not plan it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, It does raise a question about the writing, though, that it, it felt like, so obviously I'm white, right? I don't have any uh, cultural or ancestral claim to some of the ideas that you're bringing forth. But yet the book felt very accessible to me. So do you feel like there's a, a navigation there? Like when you think about forgiveness or the day of the week that you had to make choices about for whom the book was for in the sense of like your reader that were difficult? Or did you just, was it easy to write this way feeling like those who got it would get it and those who did not would not? How did you navigate the issue that obviously like the book is both not for and for some people and not others, but yet it is for everyone, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, <clears throat> just something to keep in mind with all of my writing is that I am writing as a black person, and I'm thinking about black people when I write. Mm. So, um, to sort of paraphrase Langston Hughes, if if white people get something out of it, that's great. If they don't, that doesn't matter to me either. Mm. But I've had uh, white colleagues say to me that this is, and and I've been surprised at how many people (laughs) have said this to me, that white people need to read this book, Mm. but they need to also understand that they are not the primary audience for this book because I'm writing out of a love of myself and a love of being Black and a love of Black people. That's where all of my work comes from. so And thinking about forgiveness, that was inspired specifically, as I discuss in the conclusion, by Black people who said to the man that went into the church in Charleston, after they invited him into the circle of prayer, this is something that I have done many times in my life, that he would respond by going through with what he had in mind when he walked into that church, which was to take a gun and to shoot and kill as many of the Black people that were present, that had welcomed him as they possibly could. Hmm. So how do you respond to that? And the amazing thing is that the family members would say that, I forgive you, That was just amazing. And again, I just don't see any greater level of humanity than something like that. So, um, you know, that's what that's a, a sort of burden and a release and another level, I think, of the conversion and transformation experience that is a legacy. It's as if we always are going back to the middle passage. Because the people who were there in South Carolina are most certainly um, descendants of African people. Again, this is Charleston, South Carolina, where enslaved people were sold, as um, Daniel Black describes and taps into in um, his book, The Coming, his novel, The Coming. So, um, you know, I couldn't take that away Realizing what happened in Charleston, South Carolina, where I, have, where I have been several times to visit, I could not in um, this text without going there and really thinking about um, the significance of that event and its, its implications and its relationship to what I had begun to write about in this book, Reimagining the Middle Passage.
0: Yeah. I am um, a little, little difficult to figure out what to say to something like that, <laughs> but I can only say thank you for the book. And um, certainly to the 10,000 people listening to this interview, we've only scratched the surface. So it is 100% a must read, I think, for everyone. And again, like you said, it'll find its audience, but being challenged by the concepts of the book, I found productive. Um, I can't tell other people what to do, but wrestling with a text I think is an, is an important thing for people to be willing to do. So with that said, do you want to talk about new projects you've got going on or maybe there's an afterlife for the book cuz this is at this point this is about 3 years old right 2018 so do you, are you mm-hmm. I think you're working on something with New Orleans now if i read your website correctly.
2: I am. I'm always working (laughs) on it. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm really excited. I have two books that are coming out, one later this year and the other one I think will come out next year. Um I've I've turned them into the publisher, so waiting for proofs. But Rutgers University Press will be publishing See Me Naked. Defining pleasure, uh, Black women defining pleasure in the interwar era. Mm. And so I provide, I look at a definition of Black women and how they defined pleasure during that era. And I extrapolate from archives, I extrapolate from the work and the lives of four Black women in particular. That would be Lena Horn. Mm. Linda Du Bois, who was the daughter, of course, of W.E.B. Du Bois, who is too often overlooked. Let me tell you, you need to see what I have to say about I'm how she lived her life um, outside of of just being the daughter and just being the wife. And I do talk about that relationship that she had with County Cullin. Uh The third and fourth women are... Um, I always go back to the blues. I love the the early blues women. So Memphis Minnie, who uh, was so bold in her music. And also uh, Moms Mabley, who's from Brevard, North Carolina. Not too far, even though I have not been to Brevard yet, but she's not too far from here. And then I also slip in Langston Hughes because I wanted to give a perspective on why he writes about Black women as he does and not without laughter, what inspired him to do that had much to do with his unfortunate relationship with his mother, which I do discuss, and also the fact that he was a voyeur. So I grapple with this idea of what does it mean to be seen? And so hence the title, See Me Naked. Mm. Um. So then the second book is one that um, if reimagining the middle passage took me a long time to write or to to put on paper, this one took me a long time to actually write from the time that I was (laughs) archived to the time that it was accepted by a press. And that one is Love, Activism and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson born in New Orleans in 1875. She died in Philadelphia in 1935. She was a woman who was heavily involved with the Black Club Women's Movement, starting with her time in New Orleans, which she left when she was around 20 years old and continuing throughout her lifetime. She was a member of several organizations. She was an active, um, behind-the-scenes and in-front-of-the-scenes worker of politics, including fighting for women's right to vote. And she was married three times, the first time to Paul Lawrence Dunbar uh, that was an abusive relationship. She married a younger man for her second husband, divorced him, and her third marriage was to a man named Robert Nelson. She also, during her lifetime, had affairs with women. So she was a same-sex loving woman who also loved men. So um, there are people who grapple with it, that they don't understand it. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Doesn't matter because that's what happened. And so I talk about (laughs) her beautiful life as, um, as a writer, as a poet, and as a lover, lover of herself, lover of her lovers and lover of black people in this book that should be hitting the shelves next year.
0: Oh, well, those both sound, um, I can't believe that three years after this, you managed to follow up with such robust books. I mean, you really must have just quite the creative mind. It's. I'm really excited. They sound wonderful. And if you have not read Anne Chang's book on Josephine Baker, uh, Second Skin, she does a reading of an, a nudity scene that's not a nudity scene in in a Josephine Baker movie that you might really find interesting. I, I it was it's, it's again sort of similar to your reading of of Roots. It's the, she's the only person to have noticed that the scene everyone thinks she gets naked in, she actually doesn't get naked in. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. what is that you know? How does that go with sort of some of the the hot and tot stereotypes of Baker and? skin and yeah it's really fascinating so just again I'm I mean I'm a book person so I recommend books that's that's what I do mm-hmm. well, thank you again for coming I'm so excited about the new books but before obviously we can appreciate those everyone if you're able please head out and get a copy of reimagining the middle passage black resistance in literature television and song by Tara Green it was published by the Ohio State University Press in 2018 so for those of you that maybe do not want a copy for yourself or as a gift Uh, supporting our local presses and brilliant authors like Dr. Green is incredibly important. None of us make a lot of money on this. New Books Network is volunteer. So one thing you can do is pick up a copy of the book, preferably hard copy, and donate it to your local library, Uh, especially in um, many areas across the nation right now. They don't have a budget, and people who would most benefit from this kind of work are not able to have access to it. You can, of course, also put in a purchase request at university libraries or, again, public libraries. But Even better, if you have the means and would like to pay it forward, donating a copy is is a terrific move. So you can connect with me, your host, Lee Pierce, on social media and Gmail at Rhetorically, Rhetorically, L-E-E. And Tara, if people want to find out more about you, you have a website or how should they go about that?
2: Oh, yeah. Certainly the website, DrTarateGreen.com is um, the best way to find me. And there's also a link there if you want to send me an email.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Tara, for being here. Thank you to the listeners. Uh, This book is one of the highlights of the interviews I think I've done so far this year. And I hope that there is more to come. So first dibs on your next interview, although I'll understand if you want to spread the love around. So take care, everyone. Be safe. Mask up. And we will talk to you soon.